0: Welcome to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit SharonChurch.com. We hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. As we move into studying God's word, I want to encourage you to keep some of that that mindset for us. The first song we sang, Rattle, um, has the line that my God can essentially do whatever he wants to. He can heal and restore anything that he wants to. So this morning, if there are things that you feel like God can never, he can never restore, uh, if it's a broken relationship or a broken marriage or a broken faith, why not? He can do what he wants to, when he wants to, how he wants to do it. That's what we, say, that's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. He is the king who can do what he wants. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We are in a series called The Letter to the Ephesians, and it's week three, so I I thought it'd be a good time to actually study Ephesians this morning. We've been all over the place trying to set some context to it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter one this morning. Ephesians chapter one, we're going to do verses three through 14. Um, I want to give you just a disclaimer before we dig into it. Um, This is going to require... some steadfastness from us this morning. It's heavy. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a lot. And I have wrestled all week long through my own stuff, my own sins, my own uh, wandering and proneness to go different ways. And uh, the Lord just, I mean, had to break me of that um, Friday. And so I think he has something for us. Uh, so i would just, I would encourage you just, if you feel distracted, pray that God would keep you, keep, keep you focused here this morning. So we'll be in Ephesians chapter, chapter 1 this morning. We looked at the past two weeks, kind of the, the journey of, of the church at Ephesus from their beginning to their end. We've seen a lot of it. Uh, we saw uh, in Revelation 2 that, that they are prone to abandon their first love. They're prone to worry more about their marketability instead of their, their uh, godliness and following Jesus. And we saw last week in Acts chapter 20 that there are, there are false gospels creeping into the church at Ephesus. There is false teaching coming in that they have to be careful of. And we learned last week it's no different for us. We also have false teaching that's making its way into our churches, even in America today in 2020. So we got to be careful there. Here's I'm going to give us, just a, um, a statement, some thoughts to think through. Did You recognize that as humans, we are prone to put ourselves at the center of the story of the universe. I don't know if you recognize that. Those of you who have parents, you've seen it in your kids, but we think we just outgrow it. We don't outgrow it. We are prone to make ourselves the center of the story. And if you think, think about it, it's, we only have our perspective. We only see the world through our eyes. Like this is, there is no virtual reality. This is all we see. What we see in the world has to come through the filter of our eyeballs first, and that's how we see everything. Uh, we have this misconstrued belief that society is progressing that we're getting better as a society. We're moving away from old habits. We're just, with each generation, we get better as a society. And it's just not true. And that's not because generations are bad. It's just because we're always the same. We're always humans. We're always prone to sin. We are always born of, of Adam and the sin of, of Eve. So we're prone in that way. I want you to think back to when you were a kid, or maybe you are a kid, and think back to the games you used to play and the way you used to play as a child. Think about the ways you used to play war or play ball or play house. Think about who was the hero in all of your stories. When you were outside at your, in your driveway shooting hoops and you were counting down the clock to win game seven of the NBA finals or to win March Madness, were you the one passing to somebody to then take the shot? No, you were the one taking the shot. And if you missed it, you got fouled and you got extra free throws. And that's, that's how you won the game. And if you missed a free throw, there was a lane violation, so you got to, you got to shoot again. Or... Um, Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you played house, maybe you were taking care of your baby dolls, and, um, and were you a bad mama? No, you were the best mother there's ever been. You took care of your kids, you fed them well, you gave them cupcakes for dinner. This is, you're, we become the hero, it's in us early on that we are the center of our story. We are the center of the universe. Think about any board games you've played. The goal is not to be humble, the goal is to win. In Monopoly, that takes you three and a half weeks to play. When you play Monopoly, uh, the goal is to get rich and wealthy and to take advantage of other people coming onto your street. that's That's how you win the game. It's set up so that you are the hero of the story. You don't win by allowing someone else to live for free. Um, on Broadway. You don't, you don't win that way. The game of life. You make choices to have the career you want and the desires you want. Now, let's fast forward into video games. We have things called first person shooter, first person video games. We have virtual reality. We have um, ways that you can create yourself on Madden. And if you create yourself on Madden, you're a 99 at everything. You're not bad at anything at, at Madden because we are the center. We are the hero of the story. It's, just, it's how we're wired. And it doesn't get better. It's not better in 2020 than it was uh, back at the creation of the world. It's not any better. It's the same. And it will not get better in five or 10 years. And it will not get better when you're older. You will continue to see the world with you at the center of it. You will continue to. And now we have social media. So now you can let everybody else know that you're the center of the universe. Look at these pictures. Look at this filter. Look how beautiful I am. Look who I cropped out. Look what I think about this. You wanna know what I think about it? I will tell you. I don't, no one cares what you think about it. But Facebook asks you, so you tell them, this is what I think about everything going on in the world. Like you have some kind of platform to change the world. So social media amplifies those things for us, but it goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter three, At the fall of man. God created a perfect garden. Everything is as it should be. There's just one rule, don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But like us, Adam and Eve were not content to be with God. They wanted to be like God that's where we find ourselves this morning if we're honest it's not enough just to be with him we want to be in charge we want to be him we want to decide we want to decide the this we want to decide the boundaries in which we live we want to decide the world we we want to be in charge it's not enough to just be with god we want to be with him So that's the journey of humanity and will continue to be until Jesus returns to take us home to paradise and heaven. This will be our journey to fight against putting ourselves at the center. So in Ephesians chapter 1, in a lot of Paul's letters, Paul is going to approach that subject um, in a number of different ways. Just so you know, here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14... Paul wrote this as one long run-on sentence that would get you in trouble in high school English. It's literally one sentence in the Greek language. Lots of commas and semicolons and things that none of us actually know how to use, uh, but they're on our keyboard anyway. This is, this is what Paul wrote, right, one long sentence. So I'm gonna read from the English Standard Version, the ESV, it's just my preferred one to study and teach out of. It's more of a literal word-for-word translation. You might have a different translation I want to encourage you in this. Don't be distracted by the punctuation because nobody knew how to translate it. There's just one long sentence. so uh, Translators did the best that they could and depending on which translation you're reading, it's going to be a little bit different as far as the punctuation goes. We're going to step into some heady kind of theological things this morning and I'm going to do the best I can to communicate them well. Um, but I heard it, this, put, it this, put it this way. Uh, the point of a light is to light the path, not to create shadows. So let's not be distracted by the shadows this morning. Does that make sense? The point of a light, the point of a street lamp or a flashlight is to light your path, not to create shadows, but we're often distracted by the shadows and we miss the path. So let's try to stay on the path this morning as best we can. Everybody with me? All right. This passage in Ephesians chapter one is about what's called soteriology. So it'll be on the screen um, this is the doctrine of salvation you don 't really need to memorize that word it 's not that important to know what it is, but it 's soteriology is the doctrine or study of salvation that 's what soteriology is there 's uh, three big ologies under theology in scripture soteriology so the study or the, the study of doctrine of our salvation Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church, and eschatology is the doctrine of the end times those are three that we'll probably cover at some point, as long as as the Lord has me here, we'll cover some of those. Soteriology is our doctrine of salvation. Paul, who wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus, is very passionate about soteriology. He believes this is important enough that in almost every letter, Paul will talk about the doctrine of salvation, how God saved us. And yes, he'll talk about Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection, but he's gonna get underneath some of that stuff in ways that that we in the church often don't get into. But I, I feel led for us to go in this direction this morning. And here's why, because if we get our soteriology wrong, we get everything else wrong. If we have a doctrine of salvation that is false or just a little bit off, it will affect how we view the church it will affect how we view the end times. It will affect how we view marriage, how we view our, our, our jobs, our work. It will affect how we view school. This is important. This is the foundation of it all. If we were all gonna take a trip to North Carolina for fall break, and I said, hey, let's just all meet at the church and we'll all travel together. But some of us decided to go different directions. We're going to the same place, but some of us wanted to go south first because we had to go pick somebody up to then go north or wanted to go east or west, whatever it was. It's not just where you start from that matters, but how you start from that position. So those of us who are Christians, we all have a doctrine of salvation. I think for many of us, we're pointed different ways, and it will affect how we get to where we're going. So this is soteriology. It's, it's the doctrine of salvation. It's determined by how we view God. It's determined by our theology. We're gonna talk this morning about something called the doctrine of election, not like a November election. That's a whole different (laughs) biblical uh, thing, but doctrine of election or selection. This is the idea, the biblical idea, the biblical belief that um, God has selected those who would be saved. Um, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But it's the idea that God initiates our salvation. He pursues us. In our fleshly minds, in our human minds, again, we, we have no desire of God until God calls us first. Think back to your own salvation story and think through however old you were before you knew Jesus. Did, were you drawn to God or not? But God draws us to himself. That's the doctrine of election. And that's a shadow we can get lost in because uh, there's some extremes of it. One extreme of the doctrine of election is called hyper-Calvinism may not be important. Some of you, this might matter. Hyper-Calvinism is the idea of a determinist point of view, that essentially God has already determined everything in the world, and that we, have, we just function as robots in his kind of um, make-believe situation. That's determinism. You can get there through hyper-Calvinism. On the other end of the spectrum is a free will belief. The idea there is that God's not in charge of anything. Um, It's more of a deistic idea that God created us, set us here, and then backed up and just let us go at it for a while. I believe the Bible lands somewhere in the middle through all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're gonna see this doctrine of election all the way back to the Old Testament where God chooses Israel to be his covenant people. He chose them. Out of all nations, he chose them. And then it continues in the New Testament in this doctrine of salvation through election, okay? Keep going. Here's our thought for the morning is that the gospel is meant to both humble us and to heal us. The gospel, the good news of the finished work of Jesus in his death and resurrection is meant to both humble us, bring us to our knees and to heal what's broken within us. So there's two things. It's meant to humble us and to heal us. If this morning all the gospel has done is to humble you, is to make you aware of how much of a sinner you are, then you haven't really experienced the full gospel that also heals your brokenness. But if this morning the only thing you know about the gospel is that it has healed you and it hasn't brought you to your knees in humility and repentance, then you haven't heard and accepted the full gospel. There's two things it does. It humbles us and it heals us. Now, as we're reading through this, I want you to pay attention to a few phrases in this long run-on sentence. Uh, The phrase in him or in Christ is gonna come up a lot for us. The second one is to the praise of or to the magnification of. And then thirdly, according to. Paul is a brilliant intellect and thinker. I mean, probably one of the most smartest men that's ever walked on the face of the earth. And in all of his letters, he doesn't just say, because I said so. He's going to give you whys behind everything. So he's like a lawyer will present his evidence, present his facts, his case, and then will give you all the foundation underneath it. And that's this phrase, according to or in alignment with. He's not just going to spout off and say random theological things. He's going to give us some evidence of it. You ready to dig in? Ephesians chapter one, we're gonna start here in verse three. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're half a verse in, I'm gonna stop. Uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought through the fact that Jesus himself has a God? Jesus has a God. Yes, he is fully God, but he has a God. And this is called the doctrine of the Trinity for us. It's an Orthodox Christian belief that our God is three in one, three persons in one being. This is who God is. He is three in one. We see it all the way back to the first page of the Bible in Genesis 1. We're going to see it here in Ephesians chapter 1. So there's God the Father, and it's God the Father who arranges and designs everything. This is God the Father, the creator God the Father. That's one person of the Trinity. And then we have God the Son, who we call Jesus, God in flesh. And then God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is fully God. He is no less God than God the Father is, but he has a different role and function in in the Trinity. So here Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which tells us this, that even Jesus submits to the will of the Father. He would say that in all of the Gospels, he would say, I do what the Father has commanded me to do. So just quickly, if Jesus will submit to God, what gives us any reason to think we shouldn't? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, uh, continuing in verse three, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He's not speaking of... um, physical, tangible blessings. Finances, a roof over our heads, food to eat. These are spiritual blessings. And he's going to list what the spiritual blessings are here in Ephesians chapter one. And they're in the heavenly places. I don't want you to think streets of gold. Heaven, which our daughter Landry says is above the sky. Not, not that heaven, but of the reign and rule of God. That's what the heavenly place is. It's the realm of God. He's given a spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then verse four, even as, which is Paul's way of saying such as, or here, here begins the list of the spiritual blessings we've been given. So here we go in verse four. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This word chose is the word elected. This is where, again, they're shadows Let's stay on the path with the light. He chose us. God pursued us. He chose us. When we hear the word chose, if you're like me, you think back to like elementary school kickball on the playground. And you've got everybody lined up and you say, uh, she plays soccer, he plays chess, I'm going to go with her to be on my team. So it's based on merit, based on earning, based on um, aptitude. We're going to learn something here, that God has selected us. He has elected those of us who are following Jesus. He has elected us. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says that before God created anything, the world was formless and void. It was just blackness, no sound, no structure, nothing. This was before the foundation of the world. So it means before the foundation of the world, you and I hadn't accomplished anything yet. We hadn't um, uh, gotten a good SAT score or a bad SAT score. We hadn't um, done well at school. We hadn't been a good father. We hadn't been a good mother or spouse. We hadn't um, got all the accolades at work. We hadn't done any of that yet. On the flip side, we also hadn't um, failed as much as we failed now. Before the foundation of the world, you and I hadn't done anything. Chronologically, we hadn't done anything yet. So Paul is making the point here that before we had anything to offer to God, he chose us. Before we had anything to offer him. Because here's what we're deceived to believe is that God chose us because of what we had to offer him on his team. So it's like God's picking an all-star team And he's gonna select the best of the best to be on his team. And we don't think that initially. Just over time, we begin to say, oh, I I see why you picked me, because I can play guitar. I get it, you you picked me for that. Oh, I see why you picked me, because I I can speak well. Oh, I see why you picked me, I've never sinned. So we fall into, into that trap. But this is the point Paul is making, his soteriology, salvation for him, happened before the foundation of the world. We're gonna look at two things in this passage, the goal of our salvation and then the grounds of our salvation. Uh, So we're gonna look at the purpose and then underneath it, the why or the motivation. The first goal here is that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you're following Jesus this morning, you've been saved so that you would be sanctified, that you would be made holy, that you would continue to walk in more holiness as the days and months and years progress. So if you have the spirit in you, if you're following Jesus, uh, today you should have a better understanding of his will than you did five years ago. There should be progress. We should be holy and blameless before him. That's the one goal of our salvation, which tells us then that we weren't holy and blameless before he chose us. Again, here's where punctuation gets weird. So my translation, verse four, has the first part of verse five in it, in love. Yours might be different. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Here's another word that will be a shadow if we're not careful, the word predestined. If you know, any English, you know that pre means before, and destined is just that he um, created or had a plan for us. He predestined. Before the foundation of the world, he predestined. Again, We think we're the center of the universe and we control everything. The point Paul is making is you don't control anything. I think the point that COVID has made for us is that you don't control anything. You're not in charge of anything. And God is slowly pulling back any lies that we thought we controlled anything. And Paul's doing the same thing here. He predestined us for adoption. This is the second goal of salvation. First, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Secondly, that we would be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ. Holy and blameless before him, but that we would be adopted as sons. A quick sidebar, some modern translations are taking out the word sons and replacing it with children, which is fine because it includes male and female. But what's lost is in this culture, um, daughters do not receive inheritance, only sons do. The reason it says sons is not because women are excluded, but because the point is inheritance. We've been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the goal. So my translation says, according to in alignment with the purpose of his will. This word for purpose is God's good pleasure. We read purpose and we think of a plan um, without emotion, a plan that we must accomplish. That's the purpose. This word, your translation might already say it, it's for his good pleasure then the word will is actually the word desire. So to read it that way is that God has um, chosen us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us to adoption according to in alignment with his good pleasure of his will. So this is the grounds of our salvation. This is why we were saved, because God wanted to. Because God wanted to. It wasn't because you had anything to offer him. We're gonna learn later. It's because we had even less than nothing to offer him. We only had rag, filthy rags to offer him. But God, in his good pleasure, has rescued us, has saved us. This is the grounds of our salvation. He saved you. If you're following Jesus, he saved you because he wanted to. So for some of you this morning, that's healing for you. He didn't have to save you. You're not the little sibling who had to tag along with your older brother. I guess he's coming too. He, want, he meant to, he wanted to. He wanted you, he wanted to save you. His good pleasure, that's the grounds of salvation. And quickly, how that strikes your heart, how that makes you feel right now is going to reveal your soteriology. It's gonna v- reveal how you view God and who you think is in charge and what you think is right and true. He saved you because he wanted to. He saved me because he wanted to. If you think that's bad, look at verse six. To the praise of his glorious grace, or to the praise of the glory of his grace. So just catch what's happening. God saved you because he wanted to, because he wanted you to worship him, which sounds super arrogant. Like if any of you, were to say, hey, I want you to play softball on my softball team because I want you to see how good I am. I would not play on your softball team. We also probably wouldn't be friends for a while. But somehow God, right, gracious, generous, loving, compassionate God says, I have saved you so that you would worship me, that you would think much of me, which can sound arrogant, except for the fact that who else are you gonna worship? It's so loving of God to say, I've saved you that you might worship me. In the same way, fathers, you understand this because in your house, you have certain rules, don't you? And the rules in your house apply. Even if your child goes to someone else's house, your rules apply even in that house. Is that true? Just because they're at their friend's house doesn't mean they don't have to follow your rules. Does that make you arrogant? That makes you loving. You're in charge And that isn't for their um, pain or their suffering, but it's for their good. In the very same way that God desires that we would worship him, that we would be saved to the praise of his glorious grace, is because that's literally what's best for us. But because we're so stuck in that we are the center of the universe, any commands of God feel threatening to our freedom as opposed to releasing us to worship. He saved us to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is Jesus. So he saved us that we might praise his grace. That word is a, that word means gift, that we might praise his gift. So we've been chosen for the praise of the glory of God's grace. Verse seven, in him, this is the beloved or Jesus, in Jesus, in Christ, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to or aligning with the riches of God's grace. This word redemption is a very Christian churchy word. It means freedom through payment. To be redeemed is to be set free because somebody paid for your freedom. Or it means um, release through ransom. And then Paul tells you, here's what the payment was, was the blood of Jesus, and here's what the freedom was, forgiveness of our trespasses. But again, Paul, like any good lawyer, is gonna say, but it's based on the character of God. It aligns with the riches of his grace, the abundance of his grace, verse eight, which he lavished upon us. Uh, When you think of lavished, think about standing under a waterfall. Uh, Don't think of standing under a cup of water where it runs out. A waterfall that the water continues to overpower you, continues to overwhelm you, and never runs out. The grace of God is an overflowing waterfall of his unmerited favor on our lives, which he lavished upon us. Continuing in verse eight, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, that's the desire, So he lavished his grace upon us. And part of the grace is that we know the mystery of his desire according to his purpose, according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ. So Christ, uh, God arranged salvation. Christ is going to accomplish our salvation. The son will accomplish our salvation. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, this is not just about us. God has a huge plan working for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus. Paul says in Colossians that all things exist through him. Without him, without Jesus, nothing is made that has been made. He is the glue that holds it all together. Things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained, we've been given, we have received, we have not earned. We've been given an inheritance. Our sonship the goal of our salvation, our sonship, has granted us inheritance. It's granted us everything Jesus has. We now get. Having been, here's that word again, predestined according to the purpose. And here's where it gets confusing as people who read English. This word purpose is a different Greek word that means a plan or a strategy. We've obtained an inheritance being predestined by the strategy of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will or the intention, the desires of his will. So now he's making the point God wanted to and God had a plan and he moved all the pieces around to accomplish that plan. So very quickly, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. Very quickly, what that means is you aren't here today because you decided to come to church today. You did desire to come to church today, but it's because God gave you a desire to be at church today. And you aren't living in McDonough, Georgia, or Locust Grove, or Covington, wherever you come from, because you wanted to, or because you got a job transfer, or because you just got released from a prison work program. It's not, none of that. You are here because God, in his sovereignty, has placed you here in this area. And you didn't stumble upon this church. We don't have a sign. Some of you didn't mean to come here. You thought it was like a rec center and you're gonna play ball this morning. This is a church and you've stumbled in, but not because you meant to, but because God has brought you here. And I hope that encourages you because of this. God has created everything and he selected you to be here today to hear something. There's a plan that he is working out of him who works all things, not some things, all things, whether you're in public or private school, all things, works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, for this reason, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, this is the church at Ephesus, might be to the praise of his glory. We have been saved that we might be to the magnification of his glory glory. And here's why it's important to understand the gospel both humbles us and heals us. If you're walking as a Christian, but you're not walking in wholeness, you're not walking healed. What kind of message does that send to a broken world? Hey, come to Jesus, but nothing changes. Come to Jesus and you might be better behaved. We are to the praise of his glory. Again, I said the gospel humbles us and it heals us. And some of us this morning, um, we're gonna have to be humbled a bit first to understand this. You did nothing to earn your salvation, you did nothing to choose your salvation. I said that Paul's passionate about this. So in 2 Timothy, which Paul wrote to Timothy, who was an elder of the church at Ephesus, 2 Timothy 1 9, he says, It's God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. But because of his own good pleasure and grace, or his gift, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin, began. So again, to make the point, Paul is not just saying this to Ephesus and not saying it anywhere else. He's, this is what he believes. This is his soteriology, his doctrine of salvation. First Corinthians 1, Paul again to the church at Corinth. Consider your calling, brothers. So if you're like me and you grew up in the church, what's happened for us is we've started to believe our own hype. We've started to uh, be able to see God's strategy in saving us. And the point Paul's making in 1 Corinthians is, hey, you understand you're the foolish one, right? No, have you seen my SAT scores? Yeah, you're the foolish one. I've chosen you because it doesn't make sense. I've chosen you. I've chosen Israel, the small nation who couldn't fight anything. I've chosen them to make my power great. You have not been chosen to follow Jesus because you have anything to offer him. All you have to offer him is your weakness. All you have to offer him is your folly. All I have to offer God is my sin and my brokenness. He does it in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We try to, though, don't we? We try to. Back in Ephesians chapter one, Paul wraps up this long sentence. He says, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the gift of the Holy Spirit um, is not just that it gives you power for miracles. The greatest gift of the Holy Spirit is that you are now sure of your salvation. The greatest gift of the Holy Spirit is something called conviction. If you believe you're following Jesus, that you are his son or his daughter, but you continue to walk in sin and never feel conviction of the Spirit, that you are numb to conviction, the sad news is you're actually not a Christian. You're just someone who likes the teachings of Jesus and that doesn't save you. The Holy Spirit is, uh, in verse 14, the guarantee of our inheritance. He is the down payment of our inheritance. The presence of God in us is the down payment of something coming in the future. The end of verse 14, for what reason though? To the praise of his glory. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he is constantly at work taking up residence in your heart. And he's moving furniture around, and you don't like it. And he moves the couch to one wall, and you try to move it back to the other wall, but he's continually taking up residence in your heart. This is sanctification. Once he gets your house, how he wants it, that's the progression of sanctification. But for what purpose, to the praise of his glory? This word "glory," we say it a lot it's an infinite eternal significance. You understand um, that God is infinite. There's no end and no beginning. He is eternal. His significance is more than yours. We are but a vapor. God has existed before there was time. He is the only uncreated thing. So pretty much what he says goes. So to the praise of his significance is why we've been saved. Okay, so I'm gonna wrap this up. We're gonna move forward. So the father arranged your salvation. Uh, the son accomplished your salvation, and it's the Spirit who applies your salvation through conviction. He applies it. So then the question is, what what did you do? What did you do for your salvation? Did you attend church a lot? Did you go to Awana? Did you get some Awana awards? um, Were you really good at school? Did you go on a mission trip? Um, The church answer is, well, I accepted my salvation. All I did was accept it. I agree, but here's a problem with that argument. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul's gonna hit at that again because the problem is when we believe that we accepted our salvation, we then have merit to God. We have a work. Our work was acceptance. But in the next chapter, Paul in Ephesians chapter two says, but God being rich in mercy, abundant in mercy because of the great love with which he had for us, not because of our doings, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, can dead people accept things? I mean, you can put things on them. They're not accepting them. No, a dead person can't do anything But God made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. Then he raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But verse eight is where we need to be. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We've heard this. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The this in verse eight is referring back to your faith. It is by grace through faith. Grace and gift are the same word. By God's grace, you had faith. In other words, the only way you were able to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is because God gave you the ability to believe in it. I want you to think for a second about the things that we believe as followers of Jesus. Our faith is founded on the belief that a dead man rose from the grave. That's crazy talk. That's a National Enquirer. That's supermarket tabloid stuff. That's TMZ. That, that's not... Our faith is built on a belief, and not just a dead man, but a dead man who was God in flesh, rose from the dead. Our human minds and our human hearts and our cynical ideals do not align themselves with that faith. you wanna know why you're able to believe it without doubt or even when you doubt to come back to faith? you wanna know why? Because your faith, your belief is a gift from God. He opened your eyes to see the real truth in a world that we don't see without the Spirit moving. And I don't say that to condemn any of us but that we might truly worship God who has done all of it for us. Because sh- should we begin to believe that we had anything to do with it? In verse nine, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So here's what it comes down to. The reason why our soteriology, why our doctrine of salvation is important is because a proud heart hinders praise. You wanna know why you have a hard time praising Jesus? You wanna know why you have a hard time if it's worship through music or worship through study or worship through prayer and fasting? You wanna know why? It's because we are a proud people. Why would I worship someone or something who did something I could do on my own to begin with? But when we find ourselves in a biblical soteriology to understand that my salvation is just a gift, I didn't do anything then we are overwhelmed by the lavish grace of God. If you're like me, it takes you falling flat on your face before your praise is unhindered. And when it happens, you don't go back. Once you've tasted and seen, then you don't return. Pastor in Minnesota, John Piper says, God saved me to shut my proud mouth and to open my mouth of praise. God saved us to shut our proud mouths, to make us shut up talking about ourselves, to stop thinking the world revolves around us that we might unleash praise to him. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Texas, says it this way. He says, no Christian should walk with a swagger and no Christian should walk with a limp. You know what swagger is? If you've ever paid attention to the 90s University of Miami Hurricanes, you understand what swagger is. You've seen Deion Sanders play football. You understand what swagger is. Swagger is, is the belief that I am the best and there's no one who can come against me. And I'm gonna make sure you know how good I am based on what I'm wearing and what I look like. And I'm gonna step onto the field, onto the court, into a meeting room, into the church in a way that makes everybody look at me. That's what swagger is. That look what I've done is swagger. And then you know what a limp is. Limp is when you injure yourself or hurt yourself and your, 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 um, your gait is off, your, your walking is off. But again, back to those 1990s um, Miami Hurricanes, you realize that swagger and limping look the same. They would walk in with swagger. I'm embarrassed I just did that (laughs) in front of (laughs) everyone. They would walk in with swagger, but it looks like a limp, doesn't it? Because you can't tell, is your ankle swollen or are you just super confident? Over a period of time, we get lost in that. But here's why. Because the gospel is meant to both humble us and to heal us. It humbles any sense of swagger we have in our hearts. We haven't done anything. I don't care what we think we know about scripture and what we've memorized and what we've written and what we sing and what we do. Any sense of swagger has no place in, in the presence of God. I think for many of us this morning, I think you, I want you to hear this from me as someone who thought I had to walk with a limp. You don't have a limp anymore. You've been healed You've been restored, and over time, your limp will turn into swagger. And your um, your humility has become your source of pride. What does that tell the world? If you say God heals, He can heal and redeem and restore anything that He wants to, and yet you're continuing to walk broken. You're not broken. You are healed. You're healed. So we don't have a limp. Your story is not your sin. Your story is your restoration. Your story is not your brokenness. Your story is your beauty by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I don't know if you have kids like ours, but our oldest child um, forgets sometimes that he is a child and not a parent, especially around the younger kids. So we can tell our seven-year-old to do something and then our 11-year-old feels like it's his job to be the assistant to the assistant of the general manager. And so he... He white shoots me and tries to come in and, and I have to remind him, hey, hey, listen, let me be the dad. You can just be his brother. I wanna encourage us in the same way this morning. Let's just let God be God and we can be his kids. We can just find joy in being with him. We don't have to be him. There's already one and he's better than any of us. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll just try to let some things sink in as we wrap up this morning. Um, there's good news of the gospel of Jesus and underneath that is um, even some more good news. It just keeps coming like a bad infomercial. But this morning for some of you, I, again, I wanna say this to you, you, you weren't brought here on accident. You're not here as of a coincidence. And what's happening for some of us is that the Holy Spirit is beginning its work of calling you to Jesus. And maybe you've wrestled for a little while about whether or not you should and what does it actually mean? Do I actually believe? What does this mean for me? And today might be the day of your salvation. And for someone whose eyes haven't been opened to the glory of the gospel, that sounds crazy. But here's the truth. Your sin, has, our sin has separated us from God. And and God desires union with us. He wants us to be with him because he knows the best place for us to be is with him. And he loves us so much that he's not going to leave us, doesn't wanna leave us apart from him. He's not willing for that to happen. So he sent his son to make a way back to relationship with him. The yearnings and longings in your heart and soul to be successful, to be admired, to be loved, to, to be known are healthy because they're meant to point you to Jesus who loves you and knows you the good news is that you can have all of those needs met in Jesus. Maybe for some of us this morning, we have to place our faith in Jesus and no longer in our works. And maybe this morning that's you and, and you, God's calling you to follow him. I mean, we'd love to have a conversation about what that looks like, but I'd, I don't want to leave it there. To walk in in, uh, sonship and adoption is simply that we admit that we are a sinner. We are broken. We are far away. We have fallen short. That we believe that Jesus did enough to bridge the gap, that his death and resurrection are literal and that that's what God had ordained and, and it's enough for us to be back with God. We admit that we are a sinner. We believe that he is who he says he is and we confess that he is Lord of our lives now. That's it. You just pray to, to God. Even now in this moment, God, I'm a sinner that needs salvation and I know I can't save myself. Would you save me? Make me whole. If that's you this morning and, and you've prayed that prayer, you desire to pray that prayer or know more of it, would you just in boldness, could you raise your hand just to let us know and we would be praying for you and with you. Continue. We can talk in the gathering place afterwards. They'll give us more information. I think a lot of us this morning, though, we've we've got to decide what our doctrine is. And for many of us, um, the gospel has to humble us this morning because we've gotten too big for our britches. And that's how I've lived most of my life, thinking I had done something, I had accomplished something, I had earned something. But deep down, I knew I hadn't, and so I had to keep earning and keep building and keep getting accolades to make God love me. The gospel this morning will humble you. That You had nothing to do with your salvation, but God has pursued you and rescued you. Some of us this morning, we can find healing in the gospel this morning. What you thought was your story and created a limp has been taken at the cross. You are no longer your sin. You're a saint. You're a son or a daughter of the Most High King, and you can begin to live like it. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of worship and the gift of study. I thank you for the gift of salvation and belief because I know my mind. I know I would never believe these things, would it not for you? And you have opened our eyes to the things, the truth of your your word. Pray that you would humble us before you, that you would heal us through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.